Labor of Love, a podcast about marriage, family, and making peace with the people we live with. I'm Lori Leibovich, editor of RealSimple.com. My guest today is Jesse Klein, the Emmy and Peabody Award-winning head writer and executive producer of Comedy Central's Inside Amy Schumer. Like Schumer's sketches, Klein's hilarious new book of essays, You'll Grow Out of It, skewers established feminine tropes like bikini waxing, wedding dress shopping, and competitive motherhood. When I looked at what it would mean to become a woman, she writes, of her ambivalence about growing up, it all seemed to involve shrinking rather than growing. Welcome to the show, Jesse. Thank you for having me. So you have a fairly long chapter about kind of the torturous lead up to your engagement. And you write about how you and your now husband knew that you wanted to get married, but there were a lot of fits and starts on the way to that moment where he was supposed to propose to you. Can you talk a little bit about kind of what happened and why you think we as women have this idea that it's supposed to go a certain way when it comes to getting engaged? You know, I think, you know, clearly we live in a society where there's a lot of, starting I think with Disney, there's a lot of myths and stories about falling in love with a prince and um, that the only obstacle along the way is maybe a stepmother um, <laughs> or something like that. And what I discovered uh, after going through my own bumpy little path is that um, I think for many couples, there, there, it's a lot. It is a lot bumpier than that, and a lot more complicated than that. And I think part of it is, you know, also the end of that road being marriage is really complicated and really hard at the same time that it's great. And people, I think if you're taking marriage seriously, people really wrestle with that commitment. And I think like women, you know, and men come to that point where they're deciding to get marriage with a hell of a lot more experience and options and very rich lives that they've already had. And so in a way, taking the plunge, I think we're more aware of how precarious it is to be married and how limiting it can be. Yeah. I mean, my my husband, who you know, uh, <laughs> coincidentally, we were both old as trees when we met. Um, I was uh, almost 35 and he was just maybe 39. And I think to some degree, yeah, we both were kind of you know, I wanted to meet someone, but I was living a decently full life. And uh, maybe men are in a little bit of less of a rush to meet someone. But um, yeah, we kind of, we both had careers and there were things to be given up and gaining something from a marriage. You know, I think when you're first, if you're getting married really young, you don't really have a lot of things that are yours yet, including sometimes a fully formed identity. Did you feel like your identity was fully formed before you got married, or was there a part of you, if you're honest, that felt like you weren't going to be complete in that storybook way that we all kind of grow up? I think my I think my identity as like a cantankerous, <laughs> <laughs> a cantankerous, dog-loving, comedy-enjoying lady uh, was was pretty solid. Yeah, but I, you know, I feel like I, I've i been going to therapy for 
longer than is not embarrassing for me to admit. And one thing I remember us talking about was there are certain things about being, there are things that come up when you're married that just don't come up if you're not married, or let's say in a long relationship, in a committed relationship where they're just things you don't, you, you cannot know them about yourself because they're, they're the aspects of yourself that are about how you are in a relationship. And I found that really interesting that there's kind of no way to know those little, <laughs> those little crinkles and, and, uh, and wrinkles that are part of your personality only when someone else is kind of possibly thorning against them a little bit. There was something that I really related to about your chapter about shopping for a wedding dress, which was before I got married, my feminist bona fides were sort of like you could not argue with anything I had done, where I had grown up, where I'd gone to school, the things that I read, the people I hung out with, the music I listened to. And I was so like you, one of those people who was like, I'm just going to get a really nice regular dress and I'm going to, I'm going to wear an old t-shirt that I find (laughs) at a dumpster behind the Thai restaurant. That's funny. Yeah. I mean, there was really up until the moment when I started shopping, there was not one ounce of me that felt like I wanted anything resembling a wedding dress. And then I got into the shop and all hell broke loose and I lost myself. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that moment for you when the person you thought you were was suddenly kind of hijacked by this girl who you didn't really know and who wanted, who was actually entertaining the thought of spending $10,000 on a wedding dress. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, And to be clear, I did not spend $10,000 on a wedding dress. That was not really an option. It was a dark fantasy that happened in a moment of panic. Um, yeah, I think, I think the moment for me was I got sucked into the idea of, well, it went from, I'll just wear a t-shirt and shorts to, well, I guess a dress would be nice. And then I started looking and nothing looked right. And then, well, oh, maybe a wedding dress. Like I'll just find whatever. And then I couldn't find a wedding dress that looked right. And there was a threshold I crossed where I realized oh, like I've kind of my whole life been thinking I'm rejecting in some way, like looking stereotypically girly girlish because I don't want to. And I was like, well, now it's my wedding and I really just need to be able to pull this off for five hours, really. I mean, how long is a wedding? Mm -hmm. How long are you in a dress? And I suddenly was like, oh, is this something I actually can't do? Like it went from being oh, maybe I, even if I want to do this, I'm really not capable of pulling this off. And that, I think that's what created the rabbit hole. One of the things you write about very openly in the book is how you came to discover online porn. You talk about you were in a relationship for a long time when you were in your teens and 20s. And by the time you got out of that relationship, the whole world had kind of discovered porn. And you were like, hey, why are men doing this when I sleep with them? And why are they wanting to try this? And then you sort of discover it on your own, maybe a little later than other people and feel really comfortable with it. Yeah. Um, I think I, I, I wanted to write about it because, um, I think it's, it's really interesting. And I think 
so many people look at porn, both men and women, and I never really hear women talking about porn. In terms of describing me, I don't know if you meant I'm comfortable talking about porn yes. or I'm comfortable with porn. Yeah, I I think I'm comfortable talking about porn. Um, <laughs> yeah, I just think um, like we're all, everybody is everything, you know, in some ways, like all of us kind of have our like gross, disgusting, horny moments and horny moments that aren't gross and disgusting. Um, and I don't really mean gross and disgusting as a value judgment on sexuality and horniness and sex are not inherently gross and disgusting, but just like, you know, those moments when you kind of are like, Oh, am I, am I just a full animal? <laughs> it's hard. I think, um, especially, you know, when you identify as uh, a productive, intelligent member of society who recycles and does all the right <laughs> things, that, um, yeah, I think it can be uncomfortable to think about, you know, sexuality. And the porn, the porn chapter that I wrote, I was kind of writing about, you know, Finding porn online, and I think the most embarrassing thing to admit about my porn-watching habit is how much I really just want my porn to be, like, very sweet <laughs> and to just, like, see two people, like, gently, like, doing, you know, right, like, touching one another's faces with their hands. and uh, Reading poetry and I, to each other. Reading, as a, yeah, well, kidding. maybe not quite the poetry, but um, <laughs> it could start that way. But there's this great scene um, in the end of that chapter, which I think uh, is a great pivot into pregnancy and motherhood, which is that you find yourself one night on Amazon registering for things for your baby when you're pregnant. Um, your husband isn't home and you're you're looking at humidifiers or something like totally, yeah, you know, baby room humidifiers, baby room humidifiers, which is an essential component of yeah, any nursery. The baby can't make it without one of those. That's, <laughs> and, that's sarcasm. Let's be clear. That's yes. Sarcasm. Um, and you find yourself wandering over into another tab and finding some porn and getting off and then coming back and like starting to look through the, the humidifiers again. Yeah. And, I think what I appreciated about that moment was we're not we don't often see motherhood and sexuality conflated like that. Yeah. It's not generally part of the same scene. No. <laughs> it's a very nice way to put it. <laughs> and well, again in in terms of popular culture, in but in terms of popular very culture. Much, yeah, a part of the same scene in real life. Yes. But I really appreciated that. Like as the this idea that I still think we have no matter how far we've come that there's something not sexual about being a mother. I'm wondering if you agree with that. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, for sure. Um, the motherhood is seen through a prism that is, um, I don't what are you, I don't know what your language standards are on this podcast. I'm kind <laughs> of to say yeah, really ahead. screwed up. I want to use the other word, but mm -hmm. I won't use it until you tell me I can. Um, yeah, I think, you know, I always think about like commercials for laundry detergent <laughs> um, and like other household items and like the women, like these actresses cast as moms and how they're styled and the clothes they're wearing. And it's so, oh, 
I find it so dispiriting that there's like this mom, commercial mom on TV who always has like a triangle haircut <laughs> and <laughs> khakis. It's just like khakis and like a sexless, you know, shirt and just only seems just very psyched to only be thinking and talking about stains and dishes. And it's, I think it's not about any one of those particular outfits being bad so much as it's this, it's the accumulation of this image of just this frumpy sexless mother. That's not, that's not real. I, uh, when I was pregnant and I think many You know, there's a spectrum of how people feel when they're pregnant across the course of their pregnancy. And I think sometimes you feel really, oh, gosh, I don't ever want to think about sex again. And then you have a lot of hormones. And sometimes you're like, I've never wanted to have sex more. I was like beach ball huge when I was pregnant. And I'm not being self-deprecating. I was really unusually large. (laughs) The sex with um, my husband was difficult. and. yeah, porn became really useful. I can't believe I'm the only pregnant woman who's ever watched porn. I refuse to believe this. I can't imagine that you are. No, let's, I don't think so. Let's disavow you of that. At the same time that mothers, pregnant women, you know, this sort of desexualization that happens to women when we are in a maternal role, you and you've written about this both in your book and also on Inside Amy Schumer about you know, age and how women hit, there's like an age women hit both um, in pop culture and that age is like 15 when they're too old. Um, But, and in, you know, in real life, which is probably somewhere in 40, around 40, where the culture stops seeing them as sexual. Can you talk a little bit about some of the responses you got when you were trying out for roles when you were in your 30s and and what people were suggesting you should go for? I didn't really go all in on trying to be an actress. I like to be on stage and do stand-up, but I I didn't really ever like, I mean, I maybe have been to 10 auditions in my life and I immediately was just like, oh, I don't like being in these rooms. But I can tell you that I did recently, you know, I have an agent for my, for my writing and my, you know, my TV stuff, my TV writing. And, uh, I recently, there was an addition of, uh, someone who would represent me for acting things that might come along. And the things that potentially come along now are less audition-y type things and more like friends wanting to cast me in something. And all of this, again, to reiterate, almost never happens. But <laughs> the point being, an agent was assigned to me. And she's actually really nice and really cool. I don't want to disparage her. But um, we met, and then we had a quick email back and forth after the meeting, like, oh, it's so nice to meet you. And I was like, I, I wrote to her, you know, I was like, well, just to re- just remember the things that I would want to go out for. Like I would like to play women who are 50 or 60 (laughs) so that like, it can just be fine that I'm 40 and I'm only kind of half joking. And she wrote back, Mm -hmm. she wrote back like, well, the first thing we need to do, you need to do is stop telling people you're 40. (laughs) And I, you know, I, I think, I think she was serious, but I, I'm very, it's really important to me to not to not lie about my age because that really does feel like on a 
people kind of always ask about like, oh, did you set out to do something political when you wrote the book or this, that? And I always talk about, well, there's the chestnut of the personal being political. And I think if there's one tiny little thing that women can do that is a political act, (laughs) it is to not lie about your age. Because it really just kind of bums everybody out. (laughs) It makes it worse for everyone. If we were all honest, no one would have to lie. Before you've had a baby, you talk about knowing, you know, being very well aware of how this is going to impact your life um, and that the things that you love to do, like go out to eat and just kind of be loose. Those are the kinds of things you know are going to change. You also talk in this, you know, one of the greatest essays in this book is about the birthing class that you attended where you're the only person in the room who is thinking about getting pain medication during their birth. And I wondered, are you finding the same kind of like righteous culture of motherhood now that you have the baby as you found when you were pregnant and people would literally stop you in the grocery store and ask you if you were planning on having an epidural? Yeah. Um, yeah, not only was I the only person in that room thinking of having pain medication, I was, just for the record, I was planning on having an elective C-section um, <laughs> for no medical reason other than my own mental health and desire not to not to go through labor. I was really mm-hmm. scared of the pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and the only reason I I'd scheduled it, the only reason I didn't have it was my son just came a little early and he kind of decided when he was coming and, and I had the epidural, which really helped motherhood wise. You know, I'm really lucky that I, I think I, I'm surrounded mostly by people who I think have the same aversion to the judgy mom war culture that exists out there. But, you know, my son is also really little. He's still, he just turned one. And so like, I'm not like out and about running around with him. The choices are still fairly simple, although in some ways they're not. I mean, God knows the things that people can weigh in about in terms of what you do with your newborn or your infant, uh, your toddler, what they eat or what you'd give them or formula. I mean, the whole formula versus breast milk thing makes your head explode. The bottom line is I want everyone to feel free to do what they want as long as you know, it's medically safe. I think formula is medically safe, but people get really, there's a lot of pressure put on women. It's really unfortunate. You realize that more people will write in and complain about that sentence than anything you said about porn, Oh, right? <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm not, uh, I think I use this to my advantage. And, um, <laughs> you know, that is, I was really lucky in the New York Times had reached out about exurbing a piece of the book in the Sunday paper and they asked me what I wanted to put in there. And I think they had suggested something else, but I said, I want to put in the get the epidural chapter. And partially because I I genuinely felt like if I wanted one thing from the book to reach people outside of just whoever might buy the book, it would be that. And also I was kind of savvy and I'm like, Oh, this is going to make so many people really mad (laughs) and um, people being really mad about articles on the the New York Times website is really good for people reading your stuff because it gets forwarded all around. Oh, it's great. And it did make people mad, but also 
there were a lot of people who wrote to me and wrote on the site, thank you for writing this. I think one, I mean, I think your point for those people listening who have not read this particular essay that you make, which is really well taken, is that when we talk about natural childbirth or natural mothering, first of all, we have this idea. You know, I don't know what that even means. No, it's really pretty meaningless. <laughs> um, but you talk about why do we want women to go through something that's, quote, natural when it means they're going to be in excruciating pain. Um, and I think making that point is really well taken. Yeah, no one. I mean, God forbid a woman has like doesn't shave her legs or shave her armpits or wax her mustache or, you know, no one really at least, again, pop culturally speaking, wants to see women in their natural state very much. Yeah, I think uh, I think it's really insidious, and and I and I, I think the only thing that bummed me out was some people were like, "Why are you judging my choice? I didn't want an epidural." And again, I think if you want to give birth without pain medication or do whatever home birth, I'm all for it. I just think the pressure women feel to not do these things for reasons outside of their own inclinations is really a bummer. There's a scene in the book uh, where you write about having just won an Emmy Award for Inside Amy Schumer. And while the rest of the team is going off to celebrate, um, you find yourself in a room with your breast pump kind of alone with your dress down um, and no one who hasn't pumped breast milk can really <laughs> understand the indignity of uh, the whole the whole yeah. operation but it's a really poignant moment because in a way you have achieved everything you have it all literally in that moment you and you say that you say I've got I've married I have my baby and I just want a fucking Emmy and yet there was something kind of there was a longing in you. If you could just talk a little bit about that yeah. moment. Yeah. I, de- I, I just to clarify, I find also the phrase like, oh, I have it all mm-hmm. also like really insidious. Yeah. I don't like, but that's still a thing that people like, can women have it all? Like no one can have it all. And what does all mean? And all for you. Right. Yeah. yeah. I just, oh, I just hate it. So Sorry. I, I wasn't sitting there. Oh, no, 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 no. no. I, I hate it like, too. I was just didn't know how else to phrase that. No, exactly. I, but also I, I'm just clarifying for, for listeners. Um, I, but you're correct in that. I was like, I, I'm surrounded by in this moment, like a lot of good fortune. Uh, like mm-hmm. I'm fair. And I was very lucky, you know, I have a family and, and I'm in this pretty rarefied, crazy moment. I certainly, I never thought I would get paid to write a word, let alone win an Emmy. I mean, it's crazy. But there, I, my son had been, was three months old at that moment. So I was, I gained a lot of weight when I was pregnant. My body was really different. I, I went into a really deep depression while I was pregnant. Mm-hmm. I ended up going on Zoloft like the day he was born, which mm-hmm. really helped. And um, yeah, I was having actually a really hard year for kind of whatever uh, reasons. It's like a whole other podcast. But um, and then, yeah, the breast pump and just sitting there with my now very unfamiliar body and watching if you if you've never pumped, it's 
it's a real experience. Um, you're watching like your nipples and boobs go through a machine that's kind of a pain in the ass. Yeah, and I just kind of had this feeling of like nothing is ever exactly what you think it will be. It's generally not as bad as you think it would be, and it's not as glamorous as you think it will be. And no matter what happens to you that seems like the prize of whatever journey you've been on, you're always kind of just in yourself at the end of the day and it's and you're kind of always with all of your all of your stuff you know jesse thanks so much for being on the labor of love today oh thank you so much it was really fun thanks for having me thank you so much for joining me today after two years of labor of love we're bringing the podcast to a close thank you so much for listening rating and commenting It's been an enormous pleasure delving into intimate and timely subjects with all of you. I want to give a special thanks to Grace Elkis, who's quietly worked on the show from the real simple end since the beginning, and to my producer, Kristen Meinzer, and my editor, Tim Einenkel. Real Simple's Adulthood Made Easy podcast will be continuing, and you can also continue to read my stories and interviews on realsimple.com. Please follow me on Twitter at Lori Leibovich, that's at sign L-O-R-I-L-E-I-B-O-V-I-C-H, and also on Instagram, at Lori Lebo. Thanks for everything.